You're listening to Places I Can't Return To, an audiobook by Sean Bear Flannery. Narrated by, well, me, Sean Bear Flannery. Each week, I release the next chapter here on this podcast. If you enjoy these stories, you can buy the full book in digital, print, or audio at my website, seanbearflannery.com. That's Bear, B-A-I-R. What you're about to hear are true stories. But this is no memoir. It's more of an illustration, maybe even a warning, of what your life will look like if you decide to live every day like it's your last. Because I followed that advice. I followed it for a good 15 years. And I cannot re-enter most of the places I visited in that time. Cleveland Public Auditorium, Cleveland, Ohio. I attended the Midwest Beer Fest at Cleveland Public Auditorium, Public Hall, in 1997 or thereabouts, back when the internet and craft beer barely existed. My friend heard of the fest on the radio and asked if we wanted to go. What's a beer fest, I asked. He explained that, as he understood it, For a single $12 ticket, you would spend all day going booth to booth drinking beer. I was incredulous. Is that legal? Why would they want to do that? I asked. I don't know, but it's real, he answered. It's basically the Louisiana purchase of beer drinking. Okay. Sounds amazing, I conceded. But just remember, I have to start a new job the next morning, so I can't get too crazy. You can't get too crazy at an all-you-can-drink event? I can get crazy, but I have to get back to Akron. I can't stay in Cleveland. We met at Mitch's Lounge in Akron to drive up to Cleveland from there. Mitch's Lounge was my quote-unquote college bar. I put that in quotes because, though it was on the campus of my university, Akron U, I was usually the only person under the age of 50 who would go there. Mitch's was a proper dive bar, a bar that would be unsustainable in the age of Yelp. It had a huge sign outside that said Mitch's Lounge and Restaurant, but the bar did not have a kitchen. And what's better, the sign was never a problem. In all my years of drinking there, not one person walked into Mitch's asking to see a menu. The bar was so visibly dank and questionable from the outside Everyone simply assumed that the sign was wrong. Editor's note. We contacted several of Sean's drinking buddies from this time, and while most agree it had no kitchen, there are some claims of a cook occasionally showing up at Mitch's and making food. In fact, one claims that he and Sean got, quote, sicker than dogs, end quote, after splitting a lobster bisque there one night. Sean says... There's no way, even if it had a kitchen, I was ever drunk enough to order seafood from it. And that, quote, if we did puke, I'm sure it was from the 50 beers we drank. End note. (laughs) Signs you are in a dive bar. One, it opens very early. Most dive bars are 30 plus years old which means they originally opened back when America still built things, which in turn means people were working at all hours. 
the night shift would exit at 6 a.m. looking for a beer. Dive bars accommodated these workers by opening early. Nowadays, we all work for the same market research company. And no bar created in the last decade opens before 5 p.m. Because, God forbid, a modern worker might have a drink with lunch, which then might cause them to answer a question honestly during the next PowerPoint presentation. Like, who cares what our mobile strategy is? We sell butter. Number two, the bar, that is, the serving counter itself, takes up most of the space. This is because everyone at a dive bar is drinking alone. There is no need for tables. Nobody goes to a dive bar on a date or to close a business deal. They are there to sit down by themselves and try to forget the last 10 to 500,000 hours of their lives. Plus, this long bar is how taverns were set up many years ago, which pleases the customers at a dive since everyone at a dive bar is ancient. In many ways, dive bars are a time warp to a previous era, which is why you see so many old people in them. Nothing scares the old more than change. Old people have lived through wars, poverty, high crime rates, and none of those frighten them. But ask an old guy to pick a beer from a drink menu that's organized into countries, brew styles and flavor profiles, and, oh, by the way, that's not where you order, sir. That section is for growler pickup. He will panic. He would rather disarm a robber. Number three, bad TVs. Mitch's had a very old TV, and it was behind chickenware. When I enter a bar that someone calls a dive, and I see a huge flat-screen TV behind the counter, I know the place is not a real dive. Why? Because the owner of this joint trusts their customers. They believe their customers are rational enough to understand that if a last-second fumble happens or the umpire blows a called third strike, the customer's anger is not with the device broadcasting the event, but the event itself, hundreds of miles away. The owner of a dive has no such faith. They assume the TV will be pelted like it made the call. <laughs> we had a couple of drinks at Mitch's and then we drove to the beer festival. We entered and paid, and the woman at the ticket box explained the rules. We would each be given a lanyard with 20 squares on it. We were told that each vendor is pouring four-ounce tasters, and we could ask for taste from whichever vendors we liked. But every time we asked for a drink, the vendor would place a check in one of the boxes. And after all 20 squares were checked, you couldn't have any more beers. We did the math quickly. Four ounces times 20... It was about a six-pack, well short of the Louisiana purchase we were planning. We objected, saying, we were told it was unlimited. That brings us to the fine print, she explained. Technically, it is unlimited, because you can come and get a new lanyard, and you can keep getting lanyards. They can be unlimited if you pass a sobriety test. You must pass a police-issued sobriety test to get a new lanyard. Most attendees were upset upon learning the fine print of having to pass a sobriety test, but we loved it. First off, our driver would no longer need to conjecture about their own level of sobriety. They will know they're okay to drive everyone home 
because the Cleveland Police Department will provide a professional assessment. Secondly, we loved the absurdity of the plan. This guy's failed. He's too drunk to be here. Throw him out. This guy is semi-passable. Give him another six-pack. We walked to the convention floor. The beer landscape was much different back then. There were fewer than 20 vendors, and, of course, most seemed to be huge conglomerates, Budweiser and Miller, and were not even offering beer. We saw booths for new wine coolers and ice coolers and spiked lemonades. And then notice, to our surprise, this sugary nonsense had the longest lines. It was in the most demand. But we came to drink beer. We went to the Great Lakes Brewery booth, at which I filled up my entire lanyard. My friends were drinking at a slower place, probably worried about not being able to pass the sobriety test. But I was confident I would pass. Well, off to get my next lanyard, I announced. Really? Flannery, you think you can pass a breathalyzer test? They asked as I walked towards the ticket booth. I reached the doors and turned around. Yes. Yes, I do, I responded coolly. Then Mule kicked the doors open and entered the vestibule backwards. Now, I did not actually believe that I could pass a breathalyzer. I'd been drinking for six hours, if you include the time we spent at Mitch's Lounge. But I did believe, given how many people were at this event, there was no way they could actually administer sobriety tests in a timely way, and that whole threat was false. I believed they would, in reality, give each of us a new round upon request. Hi, need a new lanyard, I announced to the ticket booth while walking backwards. Already? Challenged the ticket agent who was still hurriedly dealing with incoming customers. You got some good beer back there. Hoping you'll see a lot of me tonight, I answered. The agent motioned for me to shut up. Dealt with the current attendee, then screamed, Wolf! Field sobriety test! A guy, clearly an off-duty cop, slid off his chair near the front door. Wolf was a frighteningly large, gray-haired man with a mustache, side pistol, and a tight-fitting yellow security jacket. He braced himself, as though he was about to start a battery of federal safety checks. Then asked me, I want you to name four Cleveland Browns linebackers. Back then, the Browns ran a 4-3 defense. So Wolf was essentially asking me to name one backup linebacker. I named five. Wolf turned to the ticketing booth, pointed at me, and hollered, Pass. They gave me a new lanyard for 20 more drinks, and I ran to my friends to share how easy the sobriety test was. We kept drinking and getting new lanyards. As the night progressed and I got drunker, Wolf's questions became easier. At one point, he asked me to name 10 American cities. Not state capitals or cities with hockey teams, just 10 cities. A buddy said that Wolf asked him, what's the difference between a burrito and an enchilada? And according to my buddy, Wolf seemed to genuinely be asking it. Wolf must have always wondered what the difference is and was willing to give a new lanyard to the best answer. Eventually, we all got so drunk, we slowly lost one another. This is by far the greatest improvement cell phones have made to drinking. Maybe the only improvement. Before cell phones, when a drunk friend became separated, going after them was like trying to find a bird 
that left from an unopened cage. You could only hope that, by chance, they might later land on the same bench you both previously visited. So there I was, six lanyards deep at the Cleveland Public Auditorium, beginning to feel a little worse for the wear, and with no idea where my buddies were, and, perhaps more importantly, where our driver was located. I scanned around, and most of the crowd was as lost and drunk as me. Wolf's easy trivia questions, God love them, created mass bewilderment. It felt like I was inside an airport where they just announced that every flight was canceled due to a blizzard. People were sleeping on the floors. Others running to the exits yelling, I need to get to Beechwood tonight. Nobody had a plan. Fortuitously, though, I saw a buddy, Frank, who was not in our original group. Frank was attending with a separate set of friends and added that they had room in their car for me if I needed a ride home. Thank God, I answered. I was worried I wouldn't get home tonight. I'm starting a new job in downtown Akron in the morning. I can't afford to be late. I woke up in Huntington, West Virginia. Frank and I had another friend who began working at Marshall University earlier that summer. And we both intended to visit this friend in the past, but each time it became delayed or canceled. Apparently, after dropping someone off in Portage Lakes, Ohio, which is about 20 minutes south of where we both lived, we miscalculated that we were at about the halfway mark to Huntington, West Virginia. And being halfway there, we convinced our driver to turn south, not north, so we could finally make this trip to Marshall University happen during what is clearly a convenient itinerary. I looked it up on a map a few days later. We had miscalculated the halfway point by about 7,000%. We were 20 minutes into a four-hour drive when we announced we were halfway there. If time travel is invented, the inventors will want to know if the human mind can handle the pressures of such traveling, and they will surely use drunks as their initial test subjects. As we have the most experience of waking up in an unfamiliar environment and piecing together where we are and how we got there from small clues. We have the right stuff for this mission. We do it every weekend and we solve it in steps based on our senses. The first is tactile. Upon waking up, you first notice that you are not only not in your bed, but also not in a bed period. You feel thick, bristly cords below you with no cushioning. You slept on a carpet. Or your head rests on a piece of wood and the pillows below you have fused with your skin. You are on a couch. Next is sight, which is when you apprehend the horror. You are not simply in the wrong room at your home. You are in the wrong home. Worse, it is rarely a hotel room or anything so recognizable and reassuring. No. You open your eyes to surroundings that are equal parts bewildering and horrifying. There's usually mounted deer heads, or, or posters on the history of evolution, or old forgotten sports teams like the Baltimore Colts. A drunk person is never given rest near the hearth of the house. They are dropped into the least used room. The room that used to be the youngest child's room, but was turned into a de facto storage space when they went off to California. You wake up surrounded by all the junk the owner finds too embarrassing to place in the open. You are put in these rooms, mostly, to reduce screaming in the morning.
It's a bit like those family movies where the kid finds Bigfoot or a friendly ghost or a caring robot and they want to put them in a room where no one will find the visitor before they can explain. Last, and most debilitatingly, is your hearing. Because this is when you learn that you're not even in the wrong home in your hometown. A moment after rousing, you hear a tugboat blow its horn just outside the window, or a freight train building steam, or the pilot announcing they will taxi to runway two. On this morning in Huntington, West Virginia, I awoke on the floor underneath a giant flag of the Notre Dame Fighting Irish Leprechaun. I lifted my head up and saw that I had fashioned a pillow out of my jeans and a shirt. I was wearing boxers and socks. Frank made some noises on the couch, and I asked where we were. Marshall, dude. What? I screamed back in disbelief. You were totally in favor of the idea. You said you had nothing going on today. I never did start that job. I returned to Akron two days later, and what felt like 5,000 beers later. The lady who recruited me for the job, who was a bit of a drinking buddy of mine, said she and the employer called my home to look for me. And my dad answered and explained that I had not returned from a beer fest. They told my dad that I was supposed to start a job that morning. My dad started laughing. Do you know when he'll be back? They asked. Well, it's definitely clear you haven't started working with Sean yet, my dad answered. So you don't know. I don't ask Sean where he's going, because that would imply he has a plan. I don't know if this story is true or not, but I was told that my great-grandfather, who was a firefighter, had an identical twin brother who was a milkman. And when one was too hungover to work, the other would do his job. When it was first proposed, my great-grandfather worried more about being a milkman than his brother worried about being a firefighter. I don't know your delivery route. How will I know which houses get milk? You don't need to know it, his brother assured him. The horse does. Every time the horse stops, deliver a bottle to that house. It's foolproof, literally. As I was getting screamed at by this recruiter, I thought about that story, about how, at the turn of the century, in a small town in Ireland, two major infrastructure jobs were being conducted by hungover imposters with no formal training, and who were mostly dependent on horses being more competent than them. And between screams and threats, I further thought, God, I'd love to have a twin brother. This wouldn't have happened if I had a twin. I'd be working day three at this job right now, after my brother showed up for the first two. Or, if not a twin, maybe a horse. God, I'd love to have a horse. I probably could have gotten home on a horse. It would have known the way. I did make a decision, however, after drinking all that craft beer. If I ever open my own brewery, I'm going to call it Twin Horses.